Part four, chapter nineteen of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Kane. Part four, chapter nineteen. Philip had not eaten much that night at dinner. He had pecked at the wing of a fowl, been restless, absent, preoccupied, and like a man struggling for composure. At intervals he had listened as for a step or a voice, then recovered himself and laughed a little. Auntie Nan had explained his uneasiness on grounds of natural excitement after the doings of the great day. She had loaded his plate with good things and chirruped away under the light of the lamp. "'So sweet of you, Philip, not to forget Pete amid all your success. He's really such a good soul. It would break his heart if you neglected him. Simple as a child, certainly.' and, of course, quite uneducated. But Peter's fit to be the friend of any one, Auntie. The friend, yes, but you'll allow not exactly the companion. If he is simple, it is the simplicity of a nature too large for little things. The dear fellow, he's not a bit jealous of you, Philip. Such feelings are far below him, Auntie. He's your first cousin after all, Philip. There's no denying that, as he says, the blood of the Christians is in him. The conversation took a turn. Auntie Nan fell to talking of the other Peter, Uncle Peter Christian of Ballawain. This was the day of the big man's humiliation. The son he had doted on was disgraced. She tried, but could not help it. She struggled, but could not resist the impulse. In her secret heart the tender little soul rejoiced. Such a pity, she sighed. So touching when a father, no matter how selfish, is wrecked by love of a thankless son. I'm sorry, indeed I am, but I warned him six years ago, didn't I now? Philip was far away. He was seeing visions of Pete going home, the deserted house, the empty cradle, the desolate man alone and heartbroken. They rose from the table and went into the little parlour. Auntie Nan on Philip's arm, proud and happy. She fluttered down to the piano and sang, to cheer him up a little, an old song in a quavering old voice. Of the wandering falcon, the cuckoo complains, he has torn her warm nest, he has scattered her young. Suddenly Philip got up stiffly, and said in a husky whisper, Isn't that his voice? Whose, dear? Pete's. Where, dearest? In the hall. I hear nobody. Let me look. No, Pete's not here. But how pale you are, Philip. What's amiss? Nothing, said Philip. I only thought... Take some wine, dear, or some brandy. You've overtired yourself today, and no wonder. You must have a long, long rest tonight. Yes, I'll go to bed at once. So soon? Well, perhaps it's best. You want sleep. Your eyes show that. Martha, is everything ready in the Deemster's room? All but the lamp? Take it up, Martha. Philip, you'll drink a little brandy and water first. I'll carry it to your room, then. You might need it in the night. Go before me, dear. "'Yes, yes, you must. "'Do you think I want you to see how old I am when I'm going upstairs? "'Ah, uh, I hadn't to climb by the banisters this way when I came first to Belour. "'On reaching the landing, Philip was turning to his old room, "'the bedroom he had occupied from his boyhood up, "'the bedroom of his mother's father, old Cap'n Billy. "'Not that way tonight, Philip. This way, there. "'What do you say to that?' "'She pushed open the door of the room opposite.' and the glow of the fire within rushed out on them. "'My father's room,' said Philip, and he stepped back. 
Oh, I've aired it, and it's not a bit the worse for being so long shut up. See, it's like toast. Ooh, not the least sign of my breath. Come. No, Auntie, no. Are you afraid of ghosts? There's only one ghost lives here, Philip, the memory of your dear father, and that will never harm you. But this place is too sacred. No one has slept here since. That's why, dearest. But now you have justified your father's hopes, and it must be your room for the future. Ah, if he could only see you himself, how proud he would be. Poor father. Perhaps he does. Who knows, perhaps. Kiss me, Philip. See what an old silly I am, after all. So happy that I have to cry. But mind now, you've got to sleep in this room every time you come to hold court in Ramsey. I refuse to share you with Elm Cottage any longer. Talk about jealousy. If Pete isn't jealous, I know somebody who is, or soon will be. But Philip, Philip Christian. Yes? The sweet old face grew solemn. The greatest man has his cares and doubts and divisions. That's only natural, out in the open field of life. But don't be ashamed to come here whenever you are in trouble. It's what home is for, Philip. Just a place of peace and shelter from the rough world, when it wounds and hurts you. A quiet spot, dear, with memories of father and mother and innocent childhood, and with an old goose of an auntie, maybe, who thinks of you all day and every day, and is so vain and foolish, and, and who loves you, Philip, better than anybody in the world. Philip's arms were around the old soul, but he had not heard her. With a terrified glance towards the window, he was saying in a low, quick voice, "'Isn't that a footstep on the gravel?' "'No, no, you're nervous tonight, Philip. Lie and rest. When you're asleep, I'll creep back and look at you.' She left him, and he looked around. Not in all the world could Philip have found a spot so full of terrors. It was like a sepulchre of dead things, his dead father, his dead mother, his dead youth, his dead innocence, his slaughtered friendship and his outraged conscience. Over the fireplace hung a portrait of his mother. It was the picture of a comely girl, young and soft, with full ripe lips and bright brown eyes. Philip shuddered as he looked at it. The portrait was like the ghost of himself looking through the veil of a woman's face. Facing this and hanging over the side of the bed was a portrait of his father. The eyes were full of light, the lines of the cheek were round, the mouth seemed to quiver with a tender smile. But Philip could not see it as it was. He saw it with straggling hair, damp and long as reeds, the cheeks pallid and drawn, the eyes like lamps in a mist, the throat bare of the shirt, and the lips kept apart by laboured breathing. Near the window stood the cot where he had once slept with Pete, and leaped up in the morning and laughed. On every hand, wherever his eye could rest, there rose a phantom of his lost and buried life, and Auntie Nanny's love and pride had brought him to this chamber of torture. The night was calm enough outside, but it seemed to lie dead within that room, so quiet was it and so still. There was a clock, but it did not go, and there was a cage for a bird, but no bird pecked in it. Philip thought he heard a knocking at the door of the house. Nobody answered it, so he rang for the maid. She came upstairs with a smile. "'Didn't you hear a knock at the front door, Martha?' "'No, sir,' said the girl. "'Strange, very strange. "'I could have sworn it was the knock of Mr. Quilliam. "'Perhaps it was, sir. "'I'll go and look. "'No matter. "'I was singing in my ears to-night. "'It must be that.' "'The girl left him. "'He threw off his boots and began to creep about the room "'as if he were doing something in which he feared detection. 
Every time his eyes fell on the portrait of his father, he dropped his head and turned aside. Presently he heard voices in the room below. This time the sound in his ears was no dreaming. He opened the door noiselessly and listened. It was Pete. Martha was answering him. Auntie Nan was calling from the dining-room, and Pete was saying, No, no, in a light way and moving off. The gate of the garden clicked, and the front door was closed quietly. Then Philip shut the door of his own room without a sound. A moment later Auntie Nan reopened it. She was carrying a lighted candle. Such an extraordinary thing, Philip. Martha says you thought you heard Peter knocking, and do you know, he must have been coming up the hill at that very moment. He was so strange, too, and looked so wild. Asked if anybody had been here inquiring for him. As if anybody should. Wouldn't have me call to you, and went off laughing about nothing. Really, if I hadn't known him for a sober man. Philip felt sick and chill, and he began to shiver. An irresistible impulse took hold of him. It was like the half-smothered fear which makes guilty men go to sit at the inquests of their murdered victims. "'Something wrong,' he said. "'Where are my boots?' "'Going to Elm Cottage, Philip? Pity the coachman drove back to Douglas. Hadn't you better send Martha? Besides, it may be only my fancy. Why worry in any case? You're too tender-hearted. Indeed you are.' Philip fled downstairs like one who flies from torture. While dragging on his coat in the hall, he began to foresee what was before him. He was to go to Pete, pretending to know nothing. He was to hear Pete's story and show surprise. He was to comfort Pete, perhaps to help him in his search, for he dared not appear not to help. He was to walk by Pete's side, looking for what he knew they should not find. He saw himself crawling along the streets like a snake, and the part he had to play revolted him. He went upstairs again. On second thoughts, you must be right, Auntie. I'm sure I am. If not, he'll come again. I'm sure he will. If there's anything amiss with Pete, he'll come first to me. There can be nothing amiss except what I say. Just a glass too much, maybe, and no great sin either, considering the day and how proud he is for your sake, Philip. I believe in my heart that young man couldn't be prouder and happier if he stood in your own shoes instead. "'Good night, Auntie,' said Philip in a thick gurgle. "'Good night, dear. I'm going to bed, and mind you go yourself.' Being alone, Philip found himself leaning against the mantelpiece and looking across at his father's picture. He began to contrast his father with himself. He was a success. His father had been a failure. At seven-and-twenty he was deemster at all events. At thirty his father had died a broken man. He had got what he had worked for. He had recovered the place of his people, and yet how mean a man he was compared to him who had done nothing and lost all. Failure was all that his father had had to reproach himself with, but he had to accuse himself of dishonour as well. His father's offence had been a fault. His own was a crime. If his father had been willing to betray love and friendship, he might have succeeded. Because he himself had been true to neither, he had not failed. The very excess of his father's virtues had kept him down. Every act of his own selfishness had pushed him up. His father had thought first of love and truth and an upright life, and last of money and rank and applause. The world had renounced his father because his father had first renounced the world. But it had opened its arms to him, and followed him with shouts and cheers, 
and loaded him with honours. And yet, miserable man, better be down in the ooze and slime of a broken life, better be dead and in the grave, for the dead in his grave must despise him. An awful picture rose before Philip. It was a picture of himself in the time to come. An old man, great, powerful, perhaps even beloved, may be worshipped, but heart dead, tottering on to the grave, and the mockery of a gorgeous funeral, with crowds and drums and solemn music. Then suddenly a great silence, as if the snow had begun to fall, and a great white light, and an awful voice crying, Who is this that comes with dust for a bleeding heart, and ashes for a living soul? Philip screamed aloud at the vision, as piece by piece he put it together. His cry died off with a tingle in the china ornaments of the mantelpiece, and he remembered where he was. Then two gentle taps came to the door of his room. He composed himself a little, snatched up a book, and cried, "'Come in!' It was Auntie Nan. She was in her night-dress and nightcap. A candle was in her hand, and the flame was shaking. "'Whatever's to do, my child?' she said. "'Only reading aloud, Auntie. Did I awaken you?' "'But you screamed, Philip.' "'Macbeth, Auntie. See the banquet scene. He has become king, you know, but his conscience—' He stopped. The little lady looked at him dubiously, and made a pull at the string of her nightcap, causing it to fall aside and give a grotesque appearance to her troubled old face. "'Take a little brandy, dear. I left it here on the dressing-table.' "'Don't trouble about me, Auntie. Good night again. There, go back to bed.' Half coaxing, half forcing her, he drew her to the door, and she went out slowly, reluctantly, doubtfully, the wandering strings of her cap trailing on her shoulders, and her bare feet nipping up the bottom of the nightdress behind her. Philip looked at the book he had snatched up in his haste. What had put that book of all books into his hand? What had brought him to that room of all rooms, and on that night of all nights, what devil out of hell had tempted Auntie Nan to torture him? He would not stay. He would go back to his own bed. Out on the landing he heard a low voice. It came from Auntie Nan's room. A spear of candlelight shot from her door, which was ajar. He paused and looked in. The white nightdress was by the bedside. The nightcap was buried in the counterpane. A cat had established itself beside it and was purring softly. Auntie Nan was on her knees. Philip heard his own name. God bless my Philip in the great place to which he has been called this day. Give him wisdom and strength and peace. Holy woman, with angels hovering over you, who dared to think of devils tempting your innocence and love? Philip went back to his father's room. He began to reconcile himself to his position. Though he had been extolling his father at his own expense, what had he done but realise his father's hopes? And after all, he could not have acted differently. At no point could he have behaved otherwise than he had. What had he to accuse himself for? If there had been sin, he had been dragged into it by blind powers which he could not command. And what was true of himself was also true of Kate. Ah, he could see her now. She was gone where he had sent her. There were tears in her beautiful eyes, but time would wipe them away. The duplicity of her old life was over. The corroding deceit, the daily torment, the hourly infidelity, all were left behind. If there was remorse, it was the fault of destiny, 
and if she was suffering the pangs of shame, she was a woman, and she would bear it cheerfully for the sake of the man she loved. She was going through everything for him. Heaven bless her! In spite of man and man's law, she was his love, his darling, his wife, yes, his wife, by right of nature and of God, and come what would, he should cling to her to the last. Suddenly a thick voice cut through the still air of the night. Philip! It was Pete at last. He was calling up at the window from the path below. Philip groaned and covered his face with his hands. Philip! With rigid steps, Philip walked to the window and threw up the sash. It was starlight, and the branches were bending in the night air. Is it you, Pete? Yes, it's me. I was seeing the lamp, so I knew you weren't in bed at all. Studying a bit, it's like, eh? I thought I wouldn't waken the house, but just shout up and tell you. What is it, Pete? said Philip. His voice shivered like a sail attacking. Nothing much at all, only the wife's gone to England over by the night steamer. To England? Oh, time for it too, I'm thinking. The wake and nervous she's been lately. You remember what the doctor was saying yonder Everin, when we christened the child? Send her out of the island, says he, and she'll be coming home another woman. Wasn't for going, though. Crying and shouting she wouldn't be laving the little one. So I had to put out a bit of authority. Of course, the husband's got the right to do that, Philip, eh? Well, I'll be taking the road again. Doing a fine night, isn't it? Makes a man unwilling to go to bed. Philip trembled and felt sick. He tried to speak, but could utter nothing except an inarticulate noise. As Pete went off, an owl screeched in the glen. Philip drew down the sash, pulled the blind, tugged the curtains across, stumbled into the middle of the floor and leaned against the bed. Such is the beginning of the end, he thought. The duplicity, the deceit, the daily torment which Kate had left behind were henceforth to be his own. At one flash, as of lightning, he saw the path before him. It was over cliffs and chasms and quagmires, where his foot might slip at any step. His head began to reel. He took the brandy bottle from the dressing-table, poured out half a tumbler, and drained it at one draught. As he did so, his eyes above the rim of the glass rested on the portrait of his mother over the fireplace. The face as he saw it then was no longer the face of the winsome bride. It was the living face as he remembered it, bleared, bloated, gross, and drunken. She smiled at him. She beckoned to him. It was the beginning of the end, indeed. He was his mother's son as well as his father's. The father had ruled down to that day, but it was the turn of the mother now. He could not resist her. She was alive in his blood, and he was hers. Never before had he touched raw spirits, and the brandy mastered him instantly. Feeling dizzy, he made an effort to undress and get into bed. He dragged off his coat and his waistcoat, and threw his braces over his shoulders. Then he stumbled, and he had to lay hold of the bedpost. His hand grew chill and relaxed its hold. Stupor came over him. He slipped, he slid, he fell, and rolled with outstretched arms onto the floor. The fire went out and the lamp died down. Then the sun came up over the sea. It was a beautiful morning. The town awoke. People hailed each other cheerfully in the streets, and joy-bells rang from the big church tower for the first court day of the new Deemster. But the Deemster himself still lay on the floor, with damp forehead and matted hair, 
behind the blind of the darkened room. End of part four, chapter nineteen.